Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. Well, so we're in preparation for this big reveal migration, and so we've been on a series that we've called We Are, where we are exploring the various aspects of what make us who we are as a church in preparation to you know, moving forward. In week one, we talked about that we are one of many, and I challenged you to begin to look at your faith as not just your faith, that your, uh, your faith journey, if you look in the rearview mirror, or with millions and millions of other people like you have committed to the cause and the message of Christ. And that we as a church, we are one of many that carry the message of redemption forward. We take our part, or we take our place at this moment in history with churches past, present, and future that will carry this message forward. We are part of a bigger story. Week two, we talked about that we are committed to the cause of Christ. We did a contrast between a comfortable church and a committed church. And sometimes being committed isn't always comfortable. I mean, you know this. You know, we raised $212,000 in a little over three months. That's pretty amazing. There was some, dis- yeah, we can applaud ourselves for that, right? There was some discomfort in some of that giving. Uh, matter of fact, I met with uh, our board, and one of our board members was the chief uh, financial officer at um, CCV years ago, and he's an old friend of mine. We've done ministry together forever, and he starts crunching the numbers of what, you know, what we brought in, and, um, you know, we pledged, uh, I think, 240, something like that. I think we're at 212 plus. And the percentage that we brought in, he was like, this is unheard of. You know, typically you get a high pledge, and, you know, you're down in the 180s, and so, I mean, God bless you guys for believing in what we're doing and believing in the mystery of what we're doing. Now, if you haven't fulfilled your pledge... There is so much money going out right now, that would be a good thing to do. But we're, we're not a comfortable church, we're a committed church. And then we, week three, we said that we are not religious, and we did a contrast between Jesus and religion. We said that religion looks for a reason to accuse and to condemn people, but Jesus was always looking for an opportunity to influence and inspire, and that's what we want to be as a church. We said that religion is always pushing people to the back of the room who do not conform quick enough, but Jesus was always calling to the front those who religion pushes to the back. We want to be a church calling people to the front. We said that religion uh, makes your personal preferences a biblical priority, and we need to separate what is our preferences and what is biblical. And religion is really big on saying, well, I like it like this, and this is the way the church should do it, but those things need to be separate. In other words, we have left really good churches, we, the church universal, have left really good churches over some really small issues because we thought it was a biblical mandate when really it was, you know, may have just been our preferences. And then we said that religion sees the sins of others and ignores its own. And we want to be a church that understands that we are all on this spiritual journey together. And we have moments of highs, of, you know, striving towards the things of God and doing really well. And then we have moments of failure. And that's part of our, uh, uh, all of our condition. And so we don't want to look at the sins of others and ignore our own. We would rather be in this growth pattern of drawing closer to Jesus together instead of condemning some while ignoring our own faults. And then two weeks ago, Scott Young did a message called, We Are Counting the Cost. And he had 
some difficult things to say where he said, if following Jesus is not costing you something, you might not be following Jesus. Because Jesus said, one thing we can never say is that Jesus kind of did a bait and switch. He, he laid out the worst possible scenario. He said, look, if you're going to follow me, you have to die to yourself. Meaning it's going to cost you something. And then he said, if we come to church on Sunday, and if church doesn't cost us anything, we're doing something wrong. That together we are at our best when everyone is serving, everyone is giving a part of their gifts and their talents and, and who we are. And so Sundays should cost us something. might be a little uncomfortable to meet people that we don't know, or maybe you serve first service and you attend second service. That's all part of the comfort, not being who we are, but the committed part of who we are. And so he said some, some powerful words to us. And then Pastor Mike last week spoke on, we are revealing the kingdom of God, but we do not do it without opposition, that we have a spiritual enemy, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, as Ephesians says, but it's against powers and principalities in spiritual realms. And so we advance the kingdom, but there is opposition that comes against us, our spiritual enemy, Satan. And so today we're going to continue with uh, a message that I've called, We Are Love and Mercy. As a church, we are love and mercy. You realize that love was never given as an option in Scripture. Love was a command of how we are supposed to love and who we are supposed to love. Jesus said that one of the identifying marks of those who follow me will be love. Look at the, look at the passage. I'm sorry, it was uh, uh, in the Gospel of John. John writes that, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. John's quoting Jesus. If you love one another, if you follow me, Jesus says, the world will know it based upon how you love and treat other people. James was the brother of Jesus. And James wrote in, in, in his uh, letter towards the end of the New Testament, James speaks of mercy because we're a church of love and mercy. And James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. This idea that God's mercy, that God gives us mercy instead of the judgment that we deserve, right? That's the mystery of the cross and the forgiveness of sin. He says that mercy triumphs over judgment, but it's not just God's mercy to us, but as people who have received mercy, we should give mercy that triumphs over our judgment of others. That mercy, that I will give mercy instead of judgment to you. There's a quote I ran across today that I want to read to you. That says, the church lives an authentic life when she professes and proclaims mercy, which is the most stupendous attribute of the creator and of the redeemer. And, and we could say, the church lives an authentic life when she brings people close to the sources of the Savior's mercy, of which she, the church, is the trustee and the dispenser. I love this idea that we are the trustee of mercy. You are the dispenser of mercy. Think of yourself as a vending machine that's free and you're constantly giving people what they don't deserve, mercy. And the church is at its best when we are calling people to the source of mercy, which is Jesus Christ himself. And the church is authentic and lives an authentic life when we are just not promoting our own ideas, but we are trying to pull you, pull the community to a closer relationship with the source of all mercy, 
That is Jesus Christ, right? The first hill we die on. It's all about Jesus. So today, I want us to unpack a popular section of Scripture that highlights how love and mercy should be shown in the real world. It's going to be the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, of all of Jesus' parables, possibly the parable of the Good Samaritan has woven its way into human consciousness more than any other. Uh, the, the Good Samaritan, the phrase, is used by both the religious and the non-religious. We even have a Good Samaritan law that protects those who are rendering aid. And so this parable has worked its way into culture. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, not just this church, but the universal, any church, you've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan over and over and over again. And so I know some of you are thinking, it's nap time. I'm going to check out. But I want you to stay engaged because the meaning, the push behind this parable is not simply to do good to people who are in need. It's, it's much deeper than that. Matter of fact, the, 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 the meaning behind this, the parable, it challenges our worldview and possibly reveals our prejudice as to who deserves mercy and love and who does not. Let's pray. It's going to be a good Sunday. Father, uh, just speak now. Holy Spirit, just rest upon us. Even as we were singing, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Spirit of God, speak to us and speak over us. I pray that you would especially draw near to those who are just struggling with the understanding of faith struggling with their place in it all, maybe struggling with your love and your forgiveness. Convince us today of your love and your affection towards us. Would you continue a transforming work in us, making us more into your image? as we present ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible or smart device, I encourage you to to bring it. By the way, you will not get into the new church if you don't have your Bible. All right, so moving right along. So so Luke 10, we're going to be in verse uh, 25, and Jesus uh, is going to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, catch what's going on here. Stood up to test Jesus, and he said, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this expert in the law was an expert in both the rabbinical and the Mosaic law. This was the civil and ceremonial law that governed uh, the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And it was complex and it was involved, meaning... The person that stood up here is highly educated, highly intelligent. He knows Old Testament Scripture frontwards and backwards, and he decides to challenge, to test Jesus, and to have a biblical smackdown with what he didn't realize was the author of this book. And so he asked a question to test Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And notice how Jesus answers in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it. So he says, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? And Jesus answers the question with a question. Do you know anybody who just can't give you an answer, but answers every question 
with the, Jesus was kind of famous for this. Matter of fact, guys, I encourage you to do this with your spouse or your girlfriend. Uh, it, 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 you know, if they, the question like, are you mad at me? Should I be mad at you? So you have just put, the, the, the power is back in your court right there. If the, the question comes and says, um, um, do these pants make my butt look big? Do you want those pants to make your butt look good? You see where I'm going with this? It's foolproof, right? Something like, uh, um, what are you thinking? What do you think I'm thinking? Say, what about this one? Do you want to go see my mother? No. That's that's the answer on that one. All right, moving right along. So this guy comes and says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit uh, eternal life? And Jesus kind of, you know, doesn't answer the question. He basically says, what do you think you need to do? And he gives an answer that is strong. Verse 27. He said, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Go to that next screen, please. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, Not surprising that he got this right. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He's quoting out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which says the words that he basically just spoke. Uh, And he gives this answer, and he was correct in them. And Jesus said, do this and you will live. But there's aspects of the conversation that we miss in written text. Because what we're about to find is there was some tension going on between Jesus and this expert in the law, as we're about to find out. Something about Jesus' answer was somewhat of a spiritual rebuke to this guy. And so he needed to uh, defend himself or justify himself. And so he kind of starts to dig himself into a hole. We kind of miss the tension of what was happening. But he gives this answer, love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as yourself. And it's, it's almost as if Jesus said, well, if you should probably be doing this so you would live. Because this guy takes an offense to this whole situation. It wasn't so much the first part, love the Lord your God with all your your heart, soul, uh, strength, and mind. Uh, He was confident in his pretentious religion. I mean, Pharisees in their own mind loved God like nobody else loved God. They had over 600 rules and regulations that in their mind showed how much they loved God. It was a to-do list a mile long. The rub came on this last part, of loving your neighbor as yourself. And from what we're gathering coming up, this is where he had reservations. And so he needed to defend himself, and so he asks another question in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, in his mind, no one could condemn him or accuse him from neglecting this scripture at least among those in his own village or those who attended the same synagogue or those who believed the same scripture or those who lived a parallel life. He was flawless with those people. But see, at this time, uh, the Jewish definition of neighbor, it was very narrow and very selective. Jews saw themselves at the top of the spiritual caste and so there were the Jews and then there was everyone else under them. And so the way that they defined neighbor was other Jews who believe like I believe and live like I believe. And so they held that only Jews were really regarded as neighbors and everyone else, more or less, they could just kind of be forgotten. 
And so he's ready to defend himself on how he's faithfully fulfilled his duty to his countrymen. And so he wants Jesus to define what he means exactly by this word neighbor. Now, I want us to step out of the message for a second. Anytime we are struggling to define and interpret God's word in a way that justifies our actions, we've already sealed our guilt. Anytime we're struggling to to say, well, maybe I think it means, I, I think to justify something we're doing, just already raise up your hands and say, God, I'm guilty. All right? Anytime we try to reduce Scripture down to our level, to where we understand it and it feels good to us, because hey, there's, there's parts of the Bible that do not feel good. Right? The Bible makes a, 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 a promise of radical life change if we submit to God's truth in here. But anytime we try to interpret Scripture in a way that feels good to us and we lower Scripture, we remove its power instead of defining our life around the truth. And so what this guy was doing was he was trying to define Scripture in a way that felt good to him and justify his love for the Jews, but not loving everyone else. And so he has this struggle and says, Jesus, define neighbors. Jews had this social caste system that clearly defined who was in, who was out, who was deserving of God's mercy, who was deserving of God's wrath, and he wanted to reduce Scripture to something that was comfortable to him And so he asked the question to clarify. Now, as we continue in this parable, I want us to try to experience this as the first century hearers did. Specifically, I want us to read this passage in light of our country that um, is being polarized by politics and education and race and sexuality and where we have began to see those with differing opinions as the enemy, which is what was taking place here. If you weren't Jewish, you were the enemy. And so I want us to place ourselves kind of in that audience of hearing Jesus present this teaching for the first time, where maybe we are the ones asking Jesus, can you define this word neighbor? So to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers in a very unlikely manner, and it wasn't the answer that he wanted to hear. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down. So he asked, define neighbor. Jesus doesn't even define. He just kind of gives him this parable and lets him decide. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him as half dead. Now this road, uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, it's an 18-mile road. Uh, It drops about 2,800 feet in altitude. It's rocky. It's desert image of it there of kind of the drop coming in. And it was known for its danger because you were an easy mark for robbers. Some called it the road of blood because uh, it was common to come under bandits and robbers and thieves. And so Jesus works this into his parable and says there's a, a, a guy who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls into the hands of robbers and he's left for dead. And then Jesus continues his story. Verse 31. A priest happened to go down the same road. Now Jesus places a well-known figure in the story. But again, before we continue, place yourself in the audience hearing this for the first time. You would have thought, as everyone else did in that audience, that surely the Jewish priest is going to come to aid of his Jewish countrymen and he's going to help him. Thinking, all right, so something bad happened. It's probably some Gentile that robbed this guy. But now the Jewish priest passes by and he's going to help his countrymen. And Jesus continues his story. 
And when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. Now, if you're in the, if you're in the crowd, maybe there was a gasp, and you're thinking, what is he doing? Why wouldn't a Jewish priest help his countrymen, and why would he just pass them by? But then Jesus continues, verse 32. He says, so too a Levite. Now, a Levite was another spiritual person who tended to the needs of the temple. And again, you would think, well, the Levite's going to help his brother out for for sure. So it wasn't the priest who was the hero, but it's the Levite is going to come in, and and he's the hero, and he's going to help. And Jesus says, and when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now you would be thinking, Jesus, what are you doing here? You took two people that we respect, and both Jewish, and neither of them helped their countrymen. And now Jesus continues this parable where he's about to reveal the hero, but it's not a hero they expected because the hero was hated among his Jewish audience. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, now there would be a gasp at this point, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He put, him, uh, he put the man on his own donkey took it, uh, and took... Uh, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, we can read this passage and miss the significance in it. Jews despised Samaritans. It was uh, an ethnic divide that was well-established that had been going on now for, for hundreds and hundreds of years where the Jews had no patience, wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. It goes all the way back to 733 B.C. when uh, the Assyrians came in and took over Israel, the nation, and dispersed the Jews. And some Jews remained behind, and they intermarried with non-Jews, the Assyrians, and began to worship their false gods. And so now, 733 years later, uh, Jews are coming back into Judea, and the purebred, purebred Jews saw the Jews that intermarried as half-breds, and that they were uh, deserters of the one true God, Yahweh, and adopted false gods in worship, and they were seen as second-class citizens. Their testimony wasn't allowed in court, and there was hatred. And so for Jesus to say, the priest passed him by, the Levite passed him by, but a Samaritan stopped and took pity. It was almost scandalous for Jesus to make a Samaritan the hero of this story. Now, here again we see Jesus tearing down social barriers, kicking down cultural walls, breaking stereotypes, forcing us to look at the rest of humanity not as enemies but as fellow brothers and sisters under the same creator. And Jesus purposefully is choosing someone who is hated to say, we're defining the word neighbor. Remember, that's what this parable is about. How do you define neighbor? And Jesus says, here's my story. And so he puts a Samaritan in as the hero. Now Jesus concludes his lesson by asking one more question. Verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Maybe he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He just had to say, you know, the one who had mercy because his answer not only condemned him, but it condemned an entire nation. And Jesus says in verse 37, he says, now you go and do likewise. So this guy says, 
Who's my neighbor? Define it for me. Who's in and who's out? And Jesus picks the worst case scenario and says, this is what it means to be a neighbor. In other words, his message was clear. Stop breaking up humanity into categories of who does and does not deserve your love and mercy. Stop segregating and breaking up humanity into groups that I neither uh, appropriated uh, nor do I uh, validate. Quit breaking up humanity into haves and the haves-nots. Now let's bring this into 2017, modern time. There's a man traveling from Phoenix to Tucson. And midway through he gets hungry and so he pulls into a truck stop and he's getting ready to get one of those hot dogs that have been on those rollers for at least eight or nine hours. But he doesn't care. He's hungry. I've had those. They're actually quite good. And so he eats, and then he goes out, and, 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 and he has a little cross dangling in the mirror of his car, and he's listening to Caleb the whole way down. And he gets gas, and two men approach him that rob him, beat him, and toss his body and leave him for dead. Shortly after, a... Christian pastor pulls into the gas station, starts filling up, and he sees the man over by the dumpster, obviously in pain, bloody and beaten, but he diverts his eyes quickly as to pretend he didn't see him, fills up his car, and he drives off. Shortly after, there is a well-respected deacon from a local church who pulls into the gas station to check his air pressure, and he too hears the man moaning, and he looks and he sees him, and he quickly turns away because he has a schedule to keep, and he gets back in his car, and he drives off. And shortly after, a Muslim pulls in to the gas station, and he sees the Christian man half dead by the dumpster, And he takes pity on him and he bandages his wounds and he gets him something to eat and drink and puts him in his car and drives him to a hotel and pays for the hotel and says, however long he needs to stay to recover, I got this covered. Now, if I would have come out to you this morning and if I would have told you that story without you having any context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, some of you would have been mad at me. And if I would tell that story In many churches across the United States, many people would be angry with me. Because how dare that bleeding heart pastor apologizing for America and he makes the Muslim the hero when the Christian pastor and the the deacon passed the guy by and did nothing. Listen, if Jesus was telling the parable of the Good Samaritan Day to America, this is how it would have gone. He picked the enemy of a country and said, this is how I define loving your neighbor. It's brilliant. Now, not easy to hear, as it wasn't easy to hear for for the first century hearers, but this is what Jesus was doing. he's, he's, He's putting his finger on that little area of prejudice that we all have that wants to define who's in and who's out. Who's my neighbor and who's not? Who do I need to love and who can I hate? Who's the hero and who's the villain? And Jesus said, let's talk about the bigger issue to the question. You're asking me who is my neighbor because you've already defined who you're comfortable with loving and I'm going to expand that definition. I read the teachings of Jesus. He is brilliant in what he presents. Look, you may be struggling with who Jesus is and was he divine, but just even his teachings at face value, 
He's brilliant in what he presents. Now, I believe he's brilliant because he was divine. He's God in the flesh, and he is our Savior, but you need to decide that. But, but man, it's worth investigating his teachings. And so this idea, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, saying that if you want to evaluate the successfulness of your life, place it on this scale. How are you doing with loving God and loving others? And our response as Americans is, who is my neighbor exactly? See, if you're asking me to love people who are like me, I can do that. If you're asking me to serve people who think like me and believe like me, I can do that. If you want me to love Republicans, I can do that. Or if you're a Democrat, if you want me to love Democrats, I can do that. Or if you want me to love U.S. citizens, I can do that. If you want me to love people who think like-minded on things like education, politics, border security, immigration, I can do that. If you want me to love people who are living a parallel life with me, I can do that. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm asking you to do at all. I am defining neighbor. And it's bigger than what you ever thought. See, here's what I see in our country as we wrap this up. Our country is being polarized right now. Through you know, some of the things that we've already discussed. Through politics and uh, sexuality and education and marriage and national security and and possibly more than I've ever seen in my life, we have began to see those who have differing opinions as the enemy. So much so that we've began to justify our hate and our disgust of people who don't think like we think. Listen, this is the parable for us today. Jesus is saying, let me define who your neighbor is. See, right now, the, the worst part is not only is our country being polarized, but the church is engaging in this polarization. And the church is being pulled to either box A or it's being pulled to box B. And you can fill out whatever's in box A and box B. You know what your hot topic button is. And the church is being pulled right and the church is being pulled left. But what the church should be is being pulled up. And the church isn't being pulled up. We're we're polarizing ourselves on this side and this side. And if I'm on this side and you're on that side, you are now the enemy. And Jesus said, you're missing it. Pulling up is engaging in what Jesus has taught us as to who is our neighbor. And what it looks like to extend mercy even to those who do not deserve mercy. And, And so the church is in this dilemma today. Let's talk about our church Reveal, not the the church of the United States. For us to be successful moving into our next space on July 9th, it means that we embrace this parable and accept Jesus' definition of the word neighbor. That we forfeit the right to not extend mercy to people Because of the mercy that we've received, we have given up the right to not extend mercy. We have submitted ourselves. We've we've given up the right to not give love freely back to people because of the love that we have received. And for us to be successful in this next chapter of our life is by revealed church, all of us understanding that for us to be successful, we love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love God others, our neighbors, 
as ourself. And we don't even have to ask who is our neighbor because we already get it. And if we go in to a community with that kind of love and that kind of acceptance, we will transform a community. And this is the message that Jesus was giving to his Jewish audience, that you don't have the right to define neighbor anymore. We are, put that last image up, reveal a Jesus-centered community. And what the world doesn't need is more religious people. It doesn't need another list of do's and don'ts. What the world needs is men and women who will commit themselves to living a life centered on the teachings of Jesus. And we are that community. Stand with me. All right, Reveal, if you're mad at me, you got some soul searching to do. Sometimes the Bible slaps us upside the head. That's a good thing, right? So let me just pray for us. Lord, I realize it's a difficult word, especially in light of our current situation in the world and in our country. And yet you chose the most unlikely person for a reason. And now you are challenging our worldview. And you're challenging our perceptions and our beliefs of who we do and do not need to love. And today I would ask that you would expand that definition in all of us. Today I pray that we would be distributors of love and distributors of mercy even when it's not deserved as we have received it when we did not and do not deserve it. And so speak to us on this. Let Reveal Church go in on July 9th and let us transform a community with the love of Jesus Christ. Let word be on the street that, that, that no one has loved like this church loves. No one has given mercy like this church gives mercy. No one has been so committed to truth and to grace like this church has been committed. But let it not be for us. Let it be for the glory of the kingdom of God. We would ask humbly for that opportunity to embrace all that you have for us to be as a church and to be in that community. Continue to speak to us throughout the day, throughout the week, for the message is heavy. But the surrender is sweet. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you're a guest, love to meet you down front, or if you'd like prayer, we'll have people pray for you. I hope you'll drive out to the church. 12 o'clock is when I'll be there. We'll get the doors open. Love you to take a tour. Bring a Sharpie if you got them. We'll have some down there. We'll bring chalk for your kids if you want, and uh, we can scribble on the floors and uh, write a saying or a prayer or a scripture. God bless you guys.